returning to our series on 1 Peter chapter 3. We enter in chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 7. I'm actually going to just do 1 through 6 this evening um, after the... Uh, after the passage was submitted uh, for the order of worship uh, I, I, on Friday, I uh, called Marsh and said, I, I think I'm going to split this up and do two sermons because uh, just my sermon's getting, uh, I just try to pack too much into it. So uh, we're going to do one through six this evening and then just spend um, an entire uh, evening next Sunday on verse seven because uh, there's, a, there's a lot there to say. And I, I realize that uh, at, at this campus, there are, um, there are a lot of single young adults. Um, the majority of you, unlike uh, this morning at the main campus, the majority of you are not married. And so you might be thinking, uh, well, what does this, this week and next have to do with me? Um, but as I studied this passage this week, um, the, the meaning of this uh, really, really, uh, I got really excited about um, what it means for us because there's a lot more going on here than the marriage stuff. In fact, I'm going to argue uh, that this, this passage has less to do about uh, marriage advice and stuff like that and that there's, a, there's something going on here and it's, it's what I'm calling the ministry of submission. Uh, so I think it'll be good for all of us. So let's give our attention. I'll go ahead and read uh, through verse 7 because it's printed there in your order of worship, but I'm just going to do 1 through 6. Likewise, wives, be subject to your husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they, have, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be hidden, be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle, quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The word of the Lord. Lord, every week we need your grace to rightly comprehend and understand your word, um, but particularly on those Sundays when we uh, come up against those passages of Scripture that um, press up against our uh, cultural assumptions and presuppositions that make us uncomfortable, that confuse us. Uh, Lord, we just need your, we need a special measure of your uh, mercy this evening because these words are hard. At best, they're awkward and um, maybe at worst, they're offensive to, to us. And so um, I pray that we would humbly submit ourselves and our culture to you, uh, that, that we would let you critique us. Um, Lord, we don't come away from sermons feeling we have dis dissected the Bible. We come away uh, feeling that the Bible has dissected us. And I pray that would happen tonight and that you would have something here for all of us in the sweet, beautiful ministry of submission. Lord, give me grace to be faithful to your word. 
Um, here it is another week, and uh, once again this week I disqualified myself as a preacher. I have no business being here, but I remember your grace and your promises that, uh, that you will indeed use, as you did throughout all of Scripture and throughout all of history and all of our lives, you use a faulty, frail, weak, um, sinful people to accomplish amazing things. And I pray you would remember that promise uh, now as we open your word together. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Okay, so when we chose First Peter as our next sermon series, uh, I was very excited. I think it's a wonderful and important letter to uh, study. I've talked about that often as we've been going through this, about its importance in our day. And so I was excited about what this would be for us and for our congregation. Um, but I will admit that one of my immediate thoughts um, as soon as we said, all right, we're going to preach First Peter, was, oh, that means i got to do chapter 3, 1 through 7. And, uh, and that's where we are, which is one of the most controversial passages of the New Testament. Um, and, you know, some of you, depending upon your tradition coming from, you may have always avoided this passage, or might, maybe you came from, from a tradition that uh, liked this passage a little too much. Um, I rarely do this. Uh, but Marshall suggested uh, that um, this week I, would, I should listen to some sermons on the passage, listen to some other people pe preach on it, uh, just by way of preparation to, to help me. I did a lot more, obviously, study this week because of the passage. And he said, you know, you should listen to some other people preaching. And I d actually didn't end up doing it. But, um, <laughs> but uh, I did look into it. I was thinking about doing it. And... Uh, and so, but, but what, what I noticed is, uh, is when I kind of went to the archives of all of these, you know, these, the, uh, y'all, y'all like the, the sermon podcast thing, y'all like addicted to sermons. Y'all listen to all these like databases of sermons and all this stuff. And so I went to your, you know, the gospel coalition and looked at all these databases and stuff. And, and what I noticed is that, um, this passage was noticeably absent from pe some people that you greatly respect and, um, was noticeably present with some people that you greatly respect. Um, I went to Keller's whole database. Uh, he has one site, I think it has everything he's preached and, and all that. And uh, there's a sermon on there from every single verse of 1 Peter except these seven verses, which I thought was very telling. Um, um, and then there's one guy I won't name who has preached this passage six times. Um, I was like, bro, you, you like this too much. Um, so some love this passage, some avoid this passage, but, but I think both sides are, are missing the point of the passage. Because as I studied it, here's what honestly started to emerge for me, is that this, this passage really isn't about marriage that much. Um, it's not about uh, complementarianism that much. Complementarianism is a view of, of marriage, uh, of gender, um, that, that, uh, that we believe that... Um, that within the holy institutions that God has ordained, the family and the church, that he has, he has ordained the genders to have a unique and complementing roles to, to, to serve in, in this beautiful dance of gender. And uh, we believe that. It's controversial, but we believe when it's rightly understood, it's a beautiful thing. Um, but I, I don't think that this passage is talking much about complementarianism, actually. Um, 
I, I think what's going on here as I studied it and, and looked at it in its context, especially from where we've been, is we're just continuing in the theme of submission and Peter is talking to some unique, difficult, exilic situations um, that they are facing and calling them to submit. So we've, we've, looked at, um, we've looked at Nero, the emperor, where he uh, calls the early converts to Christianity who are being persecuted by the Roman Empire. He calls them to submit. We've looked at, um, we've looked at Christians, slaves in, that, in the ancient world who became uh, Christians and, um, and had this newfound uh, reality of followers of Jesus, yet still in this brutal um, construct in society. We talked about what that looked like. And then now, um, in our passage, he's going to pick up what do you do with the most intimate relationships in your life that don't understand your faith, perhaps even shame you for your faith, perhaps even mistreat you because of your faith. What do you do with not... not Nero, not the government, we talked about that, not a slave master, none of us can relate to that, but boy, we can relate here. What, what do you do with those intimate, most fundamental relationships in your life that don't share your love of Jesus? In fact, they hate your Jesus. That's what's going on. And Peter's answer is still the same. Submission. We may not like his answer, but it, he's unwavering in it. He calls us to submit. I love how much St. Augustine's confessions talk about his mother, which was very uh, countercultural in that day. Um, but a lot of his confessions are, are just this beautiful um, memories of his mother, Monica, um, now known as St. Monica. Um, it's, it's a wonderful thing behind the great figure of St. Augustine. Um, perhaps the greatest theologian in church history, honestly, and not just, not just church history, but probably arguably the father of Western civilization and philosophy. I mean, that, that's significant of a historical figure. And behind this giant of St. Augustine is a humble, gentle, praying mother who wept and prayed for her son every day, who was very wayward. Augustine was a wayward child. Um, a, a really um, a pagan lifestyle. And she wept and she prayed and she wept and she prayed. And Augustine finally and famously said about his mother, I could not outrun my mother's prayers for me. And, uh, and the Lord answered her prayers. But the story Augustine seems to love even more than his relationship to his mother is his mother's relationship to his father. Um, is the way that she loved his father her husband. Augustine's father was a pagan, um, very irritable, very angry, very controlling, uh, did not like his wife's religion, hated his wife's religion, hated her Jesus, would not let her practice her religion, would not, certainly wouldn't let her practice religion with her children, wouldn't let, wouldn't let him um, baptize Augustine when he was born. Um, and yet she persisted in this humble, loving service to her husband. This is what he says in, in his confessions in chapter 9, which is really a chapter of the confessions devoted to his mom. She busied herself to gain him to you. Uh, the, the, the confessions are written to God. It's like journals to God. Talking about his mom. She busied herself to gain him to you, preaching you unto him by her behavior, by which you made her fair and reverently amiable and admirable unto her husband. And, and then she waited for your mercy upon him. She served him, she loved him, and she waited on God's mercy upon him. 
And then he gets to say this, Finally, her own husband, now toward the end of his earthly existence, did she gain him unto you. She was the servant of your servants. She served all as if she had been a child to all. And so it's this picture of this one woman, faithful, lifetime of humility and service that wins her husband on, at the end of his life and more importantly, converts her son who, becames, who becomes St. Augustine. It's a mission. It's a strategy. It's a ministry of submission, which is what Peter is going to call us to tonight. Um, I, I have three thoughts here. Uh, the strategy of submission... You think I know this after I preached it already twice. The nature of submission and the motivation. So strategy of submission, nature of submission, and motivation of submission. So let's start with the strategy of submission. Verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject. Now that likewise and that be subject connects us back to chapter 2, verse 13, which began this section on submission. Peter says... There in 13, be subject to every human institution. And then since then, he's been talking about submission, about being subject. And he uses that be subject three times. The first is for, um, for us relating to the emperor or to the state. The second is slave masters to their slaves to their masters. And then this one, um, the third one, is now submission to husbands. So the fact that this begins a new chapter in the letter of 1 Peter is actually really misleading. Um, I believe it would be better to start chapter 3 after our passage uh, because these seven verses belong with submission uh, section that began 2.13. So I think this is better in chapter 2 rather than starting chapter 3, but nobody asked me when they made up the numbers for the Bible, so we'll go with this. But this is what, this is what Peter says. He says, Likewise, in the same way, wives be subject to your own husbands. Now, this is important. Not submit to men, but submit to a man, specifically your husband. This is not a blanket statement of females living in submission to males. This is not a statement of intrinsic submission within the genders. This is Peter telling wives to submit to their own husbands. And it's actually even more specific than that. So that even if some do not obey the word... Now, um, as we've seen in, in, in 1 Peter, um, when he talks about the God, Paul uses the, the gospel, Peter uses the word. He likes to phrase it as the word. And so when he talks about obeying the word or not obeying the word, he's talking about believing in the gospel or not believing in the gospel. And so Peter here is saying, even those that do not believe the gospel. Now, here's why that is important to note. As I said, 1 Peter, already said this, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 should not necessarily be directly equated with some of the other New Testament passages on marriage like Ephesians 5. That beautiful passage. If you, if you want to talk, if you want to look at complementarianism and its beauty, look at it, something like Ephesians 5 where he's got a wife and husband who are followers of Jesus in the church telling them this is what a Christian marriage looks like. That's not what's going on here. Peter is not addressing wives married to believing husbands. His concern is for women who are married to men who do not accept the gospel. And this was a huge, huge problem in the early church. In the Greco-Roman world, the wife was not allowed to choose her own religion or what god or gods to worship. She simply adopted the religion or gods of her husband. 
However, Jesus was revolutionary in that he said, I came to bring the sword. I'm going to divide families. I'm going to turn spouses against each other, siblings, parents, children. I'm going to mess the family up because I'm going to tell you, you have to choose me over them. You have to love me more than your spouse, more than your children, more than your parents. And so what made the gospel so revolutionary is that it was good news to everyone and called on everyone to repent and believe the gospel. Not just the father, the head of the house, but everyone. Wives, you need to believe. Children, you need to believe. And then everyone received baptism as the sign of the covenant, not just the fathers and the sons. Women in the ancient world were being invited to go against their husband's religion and believe themselves in the gospel and be baptized, and many did. Many found that utterly compelling. But then they were faced with a dilemma of what to do with this previously unthinkable arrangement in the ancient world. A wife with a different religion than a husband. That, that happens in our world, but that's unthinkable in their world. And as you might expect would take place in an in a, um, aggressively misogynistic society where husbands expected and demanded loyalty and obedience from their wives, a decision to follow Jesus against their husband's will made their life exceedingly unpleasant, sometimes dangerous. That's whom Peter is primarily addressing. That's the situation. So it's not exactly apples to apples to other passages on marriage. This is not, this is not the go-to place for, uh, for, for marriage advice. This is the go-to place for surviving in marriage when you are married to someone who does not share your faith. So this is more akin, this is, this is less, this is, this has less to, this is less in common with Ephesians 5 than it does where we've been. What we've been seeing the past few weeks in Peter. Exiles suffering for their faith in a world that doesn't understand their faith. That's where we've been in 1 Peter, and we're still there. Whether it be early Christians to Rome's emperor, to the, to, to the, to the government of Rome, that exilic status, or Christian slaves... Who are, now, who, who are now believers in Jesus, where Jesus is their master, but they got to still serve a human master, now Christian wives, to their unbelieving husbands. And Peter's answer to that dilemma is still the same. We may not like it, but he's unwavering in it. Submit. Humility. Love. However, there is something unique this week about submission, which is why it's really important for us, and I'm going to be able to apply it out to everyone here, not just wives of unbelieving husbands. Here's what's unique about submission this week, and it's found in the purpose clause introduced by the so that. The other calls to submissions didn't have this so that clause. Thus far, Peter has called us to submission simply because that's what Christians do, right? We are the people of the cross, Meaning at our core, we are a people of humble submission in all things. And of course, that's still true here. But here he also adds another reason to submit. It is submission as a strategy to win them to the gospel. So when he's talking about submit to the emperor, he wasn't saying submit to the emperor so that you might change the emperor's mind. When he's talking about slaves to master, he didn't say submit so that 
you might change your master. No, no, it was just submit because that's what the gospel calls you to do. But here, in these more intimate relationships that we share, he's saying, I want you to submit, yes, because that's what the gospel calls you to do, but I'm going to add a so that. So that even if they do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. Peter views submission as the wife's covert missional strategy. Culturally speaking, these women could not evangelize their husbands. They couldn't reason with them about the gospel. They couldn't, certainly couldn't argue about it, couldn't, couldn't even really dialogue with them about this. And they really couldn't expect their husbands to visit their newfound community of faith. Their husbands would have none of that. So there was literally nothing they could do about the situation. But Peter's saying, but you can do this. You can serve. You, you still have the weapon of humility. They could live out the humility of the gospel. And in this way, he says, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. And so although Peter is calling them to be subject to their husbands, in another way, you know what he's doing here? He's calling them to lead their husbands. But it's subversive leadership like our Lord Jesus. Peter is saying, your humble service is going to do this. It's going to trap them. It's going to put them in a bind. They may hate your decision to follow Jesus, but they will love the fruit of that decision in your life. In one sense, they will look upon your conversion as the worst possible thing that could have ever happened to the marriage. The most disrespectful thing a wife could ever do to a husband was to reject her husband's religion. So in one sense, this will be the worst thing. But when he looks at your conduct, when he looks at the person you're becoming in Jesus, in another sense, this will be the greatest thing that's ever happened to your marriage. They may despise your Jesus, but they will love what Jesus has done to you. But we need to be careful here with how we imagine this submission. Does that mean, is what he's saying here, wives be subject to your husband and win them? Does that mean that, um, that, that you are to um, basically become their slave and do their bidding and, and whatever they ask you do? It's just kind of this, um, I have no self um, slave mentality to their husbands in order to win them to the gospel. Actually, that's how the wives culturally already existed in many ways. And following Jesus was a break from that cultural norm. That's not what he's talking about. Peter has something greater in mind. He's, he's going to say, I want you to give them a, a different type of submission. I want you to redeem the idea of submission. I want you to give them what is good for them, maybe not necessarily what they want. Let's look at the nature of submission. They may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. And now, now he's going to define, okay, what does that look like? What's the conduct of the wives look like? Does that mean that they're just going to be your servants or whatever? No, no, no. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. It's holiness. It's pure conduct. It's the inner character transformation in the life of a believer that Peter believes will win their husbands to the gospel. But it's interesting how he then goes on to describe this. This is fascinating, contextually. What does that pure conduct look like? This is where he goes with it. Verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external. 
the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now here's why that's interesting. The one power and influence that women did have in these ancient cultures was their beauty. And Peter speaks of these cultural things that women were doing. Um, braiding hair, wearing gold. Don't, don't get hung up on here. This is not a prescription. You're, you're allowed to braid your, braid your hair. You're allowed to wear gold. This is, this is status stuff that women were doing, um, which was very important. Same stuff we do today. Um, this is their fashion, trying to um, value that and, 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 and uh, make themselves beautiful as a status symbol for their husbands. Um, Peter's speaking about these cultural things that women do, not only to make themselves attractive to their husbands, which they did, but also to serve as a trophy for their husbands. Their beauty was the status symbol of the family in many ways. And so in this way, their external beauty was the one thing that gave them power because their husbands wanted them because of their beauty. And their external beauty gave them identity and worth because their husbands needed their beauty for their uh, status as a trophy wife. Beauty was all they had. And here's what's interesting. That's the one thing Peter tells them to lay down. The one power, the one strength, the one thing they had over their husband, he says, lay down. The one thing they had in the culture over men. Peter asked them to lay it down in exchange for something far greater, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Peter is saying, offer your husbands not necessarily what they want, which is your beauty, but what they must have, which is your humility. And you will win them that way. Your outward beauty will not lead them to Jesus but your humility will. He is saying, replace your obsession with what you think can and does change your husband with what truly will change your husband. You think the power you have over him is your beauty, but in reality, the thing that will change him is your humility. And so let that become your ambition. Respect him. Let your criticism be replaced with respect. Let your arguments be replaced by virtue. Let your manipulations be, re be replaced by honor. When he reviles you, serve him. When he shuns you, you serve him. When he wants to quarrel with you, you serve him. You win him with your humility. Now listen, I know in our culture the idea of wives having a gentle and quiet spirit, just even that language, ugh, it, it seems insulting and perhaps even repressive. But listen, it is liberating and empowering because in this way you will lead and win your husband. Think about the word win there. Do you know how crazy that is for an apostle to talk to women about winning their husbands? You will win. He calls wives to submit with a gentle and quiet spirit, and yet he sees the wives as winning their husband. So are they humbly submitting, or are they winning? And the answer is both. They lead their husbands the way Jesus leads, through humble submission. Now why is it, this is important not just for wives, but getting to all of us. 
Why is it that a humble, submissive spirit is so strategic in winning others to Christ? I've said that the strategy is submission. And now we're talking about the nature of that submission. Why is this humble submission so strategic? What is it about it? Well, because a humble, submissive spirit is our Christ. Jesus is not seen in your outer beauty because, quite frankly, Jesus was ugly. Did you know that? I know he doesn't look ugly in the movies, but he looks ugly in Isaiah 55. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He wasn't beautiful. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, as one from whom mid hid their faces. And so he is not seen in your beauty um, or off the women. He's not seen in your strength, men. He is not seen in your talent. He is not seen in your self-sufficiency. He is not seen there. But Jesus is seen in humility, a humble, submissive spirit, because quite frankly, that is who he is. Again, Isaiah 55, 53, he was oppressed He's afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. You want to talk about a quiet, submissive, humble spirit. Oppressed, afflicted, and didn't say a word. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And so if you find the idea of a humble, gentle spirit repulsive... If you find the idea of a humble, quiet, gentle spirit to be insulting, don't voice that to Jesus because that's how he's known. Come to me. I am humble and I am gentle in heart. Now, all this sounds great, but what we're going to see here is that Peter feels the need to offer more to these women. Because honestly, this talk would be very difficult for them to hear. Here's how it would land it on them. They have this newfound liberation from the oppressive social expectations by going against their husband's will and following Jesus. It's an amazing thing that was happening. And they have this new community of faith where they are equal in status with men in every way. Neither male nor female, all are one in Christ, is the way the early church was described. <laughs> and then the Apostle Peter tells them, turn right back around, go back to your husband, and humbly submit in even more radical ways. They're, they're liberated to go serve in radical ways. They're going to need some help. So let's close by looking at the motivation of submission. Now notice here, at the end of verse 4, a change in the focus for the wives. Peter now seems indifferent to their relationship with their husbands and switches instead to the relationship with God. Did you catch that? Verse 4, Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Though Peter believes that their humility will win their husbands, ultimately, that's not his greatest concern for these women. And certainly not his expressed motivation. 
he's saying at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who you are in the eyes of your husband. In the eyes of God, you are very precious. And because of that truth, that truth rightly internalized and applied to your life will free you up to the most radical forms of submission. To know that the, in God's sight you are very precious. Oh, how I wish I had the time to preach a whole sermon, especially in this crowd, just on that verse, that play on words that, that Peter does here. Don't let your adorning be this, ladies. Braided hair, gold, fashion. Instead, he uses that same word, adorn yourself with inner beauty. How you're precious in his sight. That's a sermon. To you, cherished and beloved ladies of TCPC, uh, longing to know that you are precious and deeply fearful that there is nothing precious about you. You know that tension, right? That I long to be precious in somebody's sight and then the nagging fear that there's nothing precious about me. Running the rat race of our culture's vile, and it is vile, vanity fair. Bombarded with the cultural narrative all day long, every day, that your beauty will get you the pronouncement that you are dying for, that you are precious. Oh, how many times must vanity fail you before you believe that you are precious in the eyes of God? Let his opinion free you from the opinion of this vain, sick world that is crushing women. That's what Peter's doing here. Ultimately, you aren't submitting to your husband. You're submitting to God. You aren't serving your husband. You're serving your God. Who then says, my precious, you are precious in my sight. Here's my call to you. Submit in my name. Watch him defend it with the matriarchs of Scripture. Verse 5, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. They hoped, did you notice that? They hoped in God by submitting to their husbands. Their hope is in God. Now, that, that's a revolutionary concept in the ancient world where women's hope was in their husbands, their provision, their protection, uh, their opinion. And because of this, they submitted to their husband. So because they hoped in their husband, they had to submit to their husband. But Peter changes it in saying that the holy women of Scripture, don't let the holy word there throw you off. That's not like the, the righteous women, the perfect women. They, these women, just go read their stories. They were as messy as you. Talking about the holy women, the set apart, the, the, the women of God's people. The, the, the holy women of Scripture hoped in God, His provision, His protection, His opinion, which led them, which freed them to submit to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Again, don't get hung up on the semantics of that, uh, which just is like nails on a chalkboard for, for us. Um, there are times, we, we way too easily go to, well, that's just a contextual things and you can cast that off, but you actually can do that here, okay? This is just pure contextual language. In other words, this is just how they talked, okay? All he's saying here, he's not calling Abraham Sarah's God that she has to obey. In fact, he just said Sarah's hope was in God, not Abraham. Instead, this is just a cultural way of saying that she respected him. Even when it was hard, even when she didn't want to, she respected him. And then he says, you are her children. Now, in saying that, what he's doing is he's still grounding submission in the fact that you belong to God. 
When it says you are her children, that's the same thing as saying you are Abraham's children, meaning you are a child of God. You are beloved of God. You belong to God. You are accepted by God. You are cherished, protected, and saved by God. So you can do this, ladies, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Again, don't, don't let the wording there. He's not saying you're a child if you do good, meaning you've got to do good to be accepted. That's not what he's saying. He's saying follow. If you follow in her ways the ways of the women in Scripture, which fail, weak, faulty though they may be, they followed and feared not what is frightening. I love that, um, that he ends with that. Um, fear that do not fear anything that is frightening because this is a frightening proposition it's a scary thing for them to live this out and he's saying I need you to be courageous women in a great way that he ends I love that he ends with this empowering note of strength I need you to be courageous and not fear what this call to submission is going to mean for your life you know, the, the Proverbs 31 passage, what is so often forgotten, neglected in there, is the, le, the, the, the resolute strength of this woman. It says that strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the times to come. It's this, this, this vision of a woman who laughs at the anxieties of the day. Strength. And in the same way, Peter says to the, to the daughters of Sarah, these valiant women who do not fear the call of humble submission, who do not fear the cross that this is going to cost, what this will mean for them. These valiant women who do not fear the call to submit. This is where he asks of them to go. This is the call, scary though it may be. All right, let me apply it. Um, that's, that's my exegetical work with the text. Here, let me apply this, okay? Um, we're going to apply it in two ways. First, I am going to apply it to wives, since that is the direct audience of the passage. Uh, so I don't want to cast that off. We do need to do that with the passage, because that's what the passage is saying. But then, um, we're going to broaden it out and talk to, talk to all of us, because I think this does, um, I think it does, it is for all of us. But to the wives, um, let me give two qualifications before I speak to it. The first is this, as I've already said repeatedly, this is non-Christian spouses. Okay, this is a unique situation where he's talking to wives of non-Christian husbands. And here's why that's important. These are women who are caught in a deeply painful situation that some of you might be. Um, but the benefit and uniqueness of a Christian marriage where husband and wife are committed to the Lord Jesus and underneath the authority and guidance and care of the church is that he, he doesn't have to say to the women, look, I know this is hard. He doesn't have to treat the, uh, the marriage kind of like he's treated Christians to Nero and slave master, slaves to slave masters and say to them, look, I know this is hard, but the call is still the same to submit. The way happens if your husband is a follower of Jesus and with you in his commitment to his church is um, it looks different. So don't apply this differently as you're the only one who has to submit and he doesn't have to do any of this hard work. Um, come back next week. You're going to really like next week's sermon. But, but, but here's, here's why that's important. Because if you're in this situation, then I would say what that would look like to you is you both come to the church and ask for help. 
Like you go at it, he goes at it. You both work. This isn't a one-sided thing in a normal Christian marriage. However, for some, for some, it is one-sided. But for many of you, um, you are right to expect your husband who names Christ to be known and discipled by this community. That's all right. You're not, you, you're, you, you, it's, it's not okay for you to say, well, I guess you get to kind of go do whatever you want and I'll just take this role of humble submission and, and work on this and serving. Um, no, no, no. You, you, it's right for you to expect him to repent and to receive the help of the church and discipleship and all that stuff. So this is a unique calling. Um, the second one is this. This goes without saying, but I'll say it. This is not asking you to, to submit to abuse. Um, allegiance is to God. So do what is right and noble and choose righteousness by standing up to abuse. A wife enabling an abusive situation is not virtuous. And it is certainly not honoring a husband who clearly needs help. Right, this is the ministry of submission, right? That you're winning them by your submission. Well, if he's abusing you, he needs help. And you're hurting him by enabling that. And the courageous thing to do, here he ends with, don't fear. The courageous thing to do would be to tell on him. Tell us. We'd like to help. So this is not submit to abuse, okay? Um, it's the opposite. Do what's right, um, even if that scares you. Okay, with those two qualifications of mine, all right, let's speak to wives. Uh, wives of unbelieving husbands, there might, might, might be some of you here, or I'll, I'll broaden it out just a little bit, and um, wives of husbands who aren't really where you, where, where you are with Jesus, um, and certainly aren't leading your marriage, your home, um, the way you wish that they would. Um, they, maybe they claim to be a Christian, um, Maybe, uh, maybe, the, maybe they'll come to church with you some, but um, in, in all intents and purposes, you, you feel like you're in a home, of, in an unequally yoked home. So wives of unbelieving husbands or wives who are dissatisfied with where your husband is with Jesus, which by saying it that way, I guess that's all of y'all, I'm assuming. So uh, maybe just wives listen. Um, okay. In the passage, Peter's asking you to lay down the two things in marriage that you typically think will persuade your husband, will change your husband, your beauty and your tongue. Um, he, intentionally, he intentionally speaks of not adorning yourself with beauty to change your husband and speaks of quiet, silent, humble submission. Instead of beauty and tongue, replace them with humility. Your husband does not need you to be beautiful. Um, a qualification here, because this, this happens in the church too. Um, one of the beautiful things about being created in the image of God, one of the beautiful things about uh, Christianity uh, and the gospel and our biblical worldview of image bearing of God is that it doesn't shun and shame beauty. It celebrates it. Um, fashion, nobility, dignity, these are all beautiful things, creating the image of God. We turn them into idols, obviously. Um, but I, I'll qualify it that way. Um, don't shame your beauty. Don't shun your beauty. It's, beauty is, is, is God's thing, and it's wonderful. However, um, your husband does not need you to be beautiful. 
Um, that's not what changes him. You might think that's what changes him. You might think if I could just look better, if my body could just look better or whatever, um, then maybe he would pay more attention, do what I want to do, yada, yada, yada. But that's not what he needs. Um, do you spend as much time cultivating the inner beauty of your virtue as you do your outer beauty? Because I know how much time you spend on that outer beauty. Because candidly speaking, I see um, dangerously indiscernible patterns of women obsessed with their bodies in and outside the church. I see a dangerously indiscernible obsession and cultivation of those things. Um, what if that obsession became an, uh, became an obsession with your inner beauty? That actually will change your husband. And your tongue. Um, you will not nag your husband into the kingdom of God. You will not criticize him to Jesus. Um, you will, however, serve him into the kingdom of God. He will not be attracted to your Jesus with your passive-aggressive jabs that are so good. Because you know his weaknesses and you know his insecurities and nobody can <clears throat> like a wife. Again, bring your husbands back next week. It'll be fun for you. <laughs> he is not attracted to Jesus by your passive aggressiveness. He will, however, be attracted to your Jesus if he sees you exchange that long-standing habit for words of affirmation and kindness and respect. He will be blown away, as in what has gotten into her. If you lay down the years of habits to affirm him, to love him, to serve him. So wives, lay down the conventional ways to change your husband, which never work. Have you noticed that? The conventional ways to change your husband, which never work, and pick up the effective ministry of submission. All right, off of wives to all of us. Because I think this, this is why I think this is really important. Um, because it, it's not just a marriage passage. What do you do with the intimate relationships in your lives that don't understand your faith? Perhaps even shame you for your faith. Perhaps even mistreat you for your faith. Perhaps even hate your faith because it's gone and messed you up. And you're not the friend you used to be or you're not the child that you used to be. It's just Jesus kind of messed up this whole thing. And they don't get it and they don't like it. What do you do with that? I think of unbelieving friends or parents or co-workers or roommates. Those close relationships that you really want them to know your Jesus. How will you, to use the language of the passage, win them? Probably not the way you're trying. Not by braided hair and gold and fashion. I know you're not trying to win them that way. I'm using that as the metaphor. Not by strength or gifts or charisma or winning the argument or, or whatever conventional ways you think will change them. They don't need you to win the argument and prove them wrong. They don't need your self-righteous opinions. They don't need your self-righteous good deeds where you think your job with these unbelieving intimate relationships in your life is like, I've just got to be this super awesome moral Christian all the time. 
That's not what they need. In fact, they need the opposite. They need you to be honest with your weakness and sin so they can actually see Jesus and not you. They don't need you to have all the answers to their questions as if that person, whoever that person is, has these like few nagging questions and if you could just give the right answer to them, oh, now I'll, I'll take your Jesus. That's not how it works. They need your humility. They need you to serve them. They need you to defeat their opposition to Christ with the weapon of humility and love, which is the most powerful weapon the church owns. Our city doesn't need this downtown campus to be right and win the argument. The city needs your service and your love. When I first began ministry, I was a youth minister, and um, a teenager, uh, a teenager uh, became a Christian through the youth ministry. Didn't come from a Christian home, um, the first generation Christian type situation. And, um, and he wanted so badly for his parents and siblings to know Jesus the way he had discovered Jesus. And, I mean, he was doing everything wrong. You know, I mean, it's just the, the classic, uh, you know, just new convert. He's like Charles Spurgeon to his parents all of a sudden and, and just, just blasting them and da 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 Just, you know. And it wasn't going well and it wasn't working. He was frustrated. And we talked about, you know, what does it look like to be a, a, a Christian teenager to, to your parents and, and whatnot. Um, and I was waiting for the phone call and I got it. I had a voicemail um, from, from the mom's saying, hey, can you call me back? I'd like to talk to you about my son. And I, you know, I knew where this was going. You know, what, what have you done? Um, you're messing up our family. You know, get out of my son's life kind of stuff. And uh, so call her, sure enough, uh, first thing she says is, uh, what have you done to my son? And I said, well, tell me what you mean. She said, he's making his bed. What is this? <laughs> what is this strange routine in our home? He's not talking back. And even in the past where I knew he wants to argue with me, he's saying, yes, ma'am. What is this? And I got to tell her what it was, that he had been won over by a Savior who serves. How did Jesus win you, to use the language of the passage? How did Jesus win you? There's many passages I can give you. I'll give you one. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve you, and to give His life as a ransom. He wins us by serving us, even unto Calvary, and we shall win others to Him by embodying that same humble service in His name. Jesus' ministry of submission won you. Your ministry of submission in His name will win others. Let me pray. Lord, help us to live this out. Um, it is frightening. It's, it's right that you said, uh, do not fear what this is going to mean, because it's scary to uh, not defend, to not argue, to lay down the defenses, and to serve. Um, but it works, Lord. It worked in our hearts. And it's always worked, the way of humility, the way of the cross. Help us to be that individually to those most intimate relationships and help us to be that as a church, as a community to our city. Um, we need your help, though. We need your strength. And that's why we come now to your table, which is the demonstration and the meal of your humility on our behalf. Fill us with your service. In Christ's name, amen.